You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, I'm Mike Troy, host of the American Revolution podcast on the Airwave Media Network. This podcast is the origin story of the United States how we went from colonies ruled by a king to the democratic republic that we have today. The American Revolution podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end. Please subscribe for free. We're available on all major podcast platforms. I hope you will join me today on the American Revolution podcast. If you enjoy what I do here at the Redacted History Podcast and you want to support further, consider going over to Patreon, where you'll have access to behind-the-scenes content, voting on episode topics, and so much more. I truly appreciate it. Now let's get to the show. So let me conclude by saying that we have to march on with the unshakable confidence that we will win our fight for a new society, our fight for a society where freedom, justice, equality, abundance, dignity, and happiness belongs to all. Thank you very much. The old saying goes, if you don't know where you come from, you can't know where you're going. Angela Davis refers to this concept as a sort of historical memory. We may not have been alive to experience certain things, but we have an obligation to absorb the lessons of those that came before us. Integrate them into our psyche. Along her journey, I doubt this introverted bookworm would have imagined that her image would be burned into our minds, her iconic afro and raised fist. This is the story behind the photo. I'm Andre, and this is the Redacted History Podcast. How young is too young to learn about racism and bigotry? For some of us, these lessons come before we even learn to tie our shoes. This was the case for Angela Davis, who was born January 26, 1944. She and her family were some of the first black people to move into a predominantly white neighborhood in Birmingham, Alabama. Soon after, more and more white people began to leave. Needless to say, Angela and her family's presence weren't welcome. The white supremacists frequently set homes on fire and used intimidation tactics to scare black people out of the neighborhood. Most notably, they used bombs. They were dropped on the home so frequently that the neighborhood was given the nickname Dynamite. Some of Angela's earliest memories include her house shaking from nearby explosions and her body rattling with fear. Her mother, who was very kind-hearted and nurturing, offered her comfort and perspective in these moments. She assured her that just because things were like this now, that didn't mean things had to be like this forever. Her mother was no stranger to overcoming difficult circumstances. She grew up in the foster care system and left her hometown at a very young age in order to give herself a shot at a better life. Her father was an HBCU graduate from St. Augustine University in Raleigh, North Carolina and a business owner. 
he came equipped with his own strength and tenacity. The family would continue to live in this neighborhood. Fortunately for them, more and more black people were coming to the area, regardless of the dangers. They all looked out for each other and together fostered a strong sense of community. Angela found friendships with the neighborhood kids. They would play outside, sometimes shouting slurs at white people in the neighborhood as they drove by and playing ding-dong ditch to harass the racist neighbors. Maybe a little mischievous, but this was their own way of pushing back against the hate that they were experiencing constantly. She would have visits with grandma and help out on the family farm. She enjoyed the country air and day-to-day tasks. She and her grandmother were quite close leading up to her passing. Her grandmother served as a link to the past for Lil' Angela. In fact, she was born just a few years after the Emancipation Proclamation. The full extent of her lineage was yet to be revealed. It wouldn't be until more recently, in the last year, on an episode of a show called Finding Your Roots, that Angela Davis learned more secrets about her ancestry. Most shockingly, she learned she was a descendant of one of the original colonizers on the Mayflower. But that little fun fact wouldn't impact the revolutionary she was destined to be. Young Angela Davis was very bright and socially aware from the start. And because of segregation, her elementary school was very, very black, not just by demographic, but by educational materials and the resources that the students were provided. She learned about unsung heroes in history. She was taught lessons about black excellence and what to strive for. She had teachers that weren't afraid to demand respect from the white administration, even if it meant losing their jobs. But Angela wasn't looking to be better than anyone else or to be a shining example merely for tokenism. She didn't think of herself as superior because her parents were financially stable or her skin was a little lighter. She had a big heart even as a child and wanted to see everyone succeed. In her autobiography, she recalls taking money from her parents and giving them to kids at the school that she knew were hungry. She felt a little guilty at first, but knew her parents would understand. Truth be told, if I had a child and found out they were stealing my pocket change, that wouldn't be a terrible reason. As she continued to grow, her ideals about the world did too. As a teenager, she noticed a shift in what the school system was teaching her. Textbooks filled with the instructional materials supporting the lost cause. This was a propaganda that shed an inaccurate light on the events of the Civil War and glamorized white supremacy. Violence frequently broke out at the school. Poverty and stressful circumstances would be getting the best of her classmates. But her mind was otherwise occupied. She was frequently reading and spending time at the local library. She wondered about life outside of her neighborhood. In Birmingham, the bus boycott was beginning to gain momentum in the 1950s. Something inside Angela compelled her to get involved. She began sitting in the front of the bus as a show of solidarity. And it wasn't just in Birmingham, but all across the country, little by little, activism was picking up steam. Let's consider for a moment that Angela Davis was only three years younger than Emmett Till and 11 years old when he was killed. She was school age when Brown v. Board of Education was decided by the Supreme Court, declaring school segregation unconstitutional. She wasn't even 12 years old when her church was set on fire and was 13 when the Civil Rights Act of 1957 was passed, which, in theory, outlawed segregation based on race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. She was old enough and experienced enough to understand the significance of these events and of everything happening around her. 
Angela had a unique opportunity to finish out her schooling in New York. She was accepted into the American Friends Service Committee. This program gave black students in the South an opportunity to learn from progressive educators in an integrated Northern classroom. She would stay with the White Host family and attend Elizabeth Irwin High School. This would be a whole new world. Once up North, Angela soon realized that it wasn't quite as progressive as she thought. She felt a little alone and out of place. She was one of only a handful of black students at her school, but for the first time, she was exposed to some ideas that really resonated with her. It was at this school where she first learned about socialism and the Communist Manifesto ideas that she describes as having hit her like lightning. Could this new system be the answer for black people? Now, I don't want to alarm anyone listening. I know people have strong opinions about communism, but the fact is Angela Davis was a communist and it is a pivotal part of her story. Today, she describes herself as a communist with a lowercase c. She still believes in the ideologies, but has gained more information and experiences regarding strategies of execution and the party as a whole. She is no longer an official member of the Communist Party USA. Her current political party of choice is the Committees of Correspondence for Democracy and Socialism. But let's get back to where we left off. Angela was feeling lonely and discovered communism in the classroom. She also began to resent the fact that she was up north learning about these new ideas while demonstrations were increasing in the South without her. Around this time, the bus boycotts in her hometown of Birmingham were in full swing, and so were the racial tensions. Since she couldn't be in the middle of the action and had very little community, she became friends with many of the foreign students on campus. She worked hard as a waitress to save up money so she could attend the World Festival of Youth Conference in Helsinki and explore Europe. She was excited to learn more about the world and the struggles within it. The World Festival of Youth Conference was held to bring young people from all over the globe to fight against imperialism. The event would have thousands of people from over 100 countries. There were several events, speakers, and networking opportunities. That year, the motto was Friendship and Peace, a theme Angela could get behind. Her trip around Europe would show her just how universal the struggle was. Algerians in France and Caribbeans in England faced similar racism and mistreatment as that of black people back home in the United States. She largely enjoyed the festival. She was very impressed by the Cuban attendees and their presentation. They were fresh off their revolution and brought joy, pride, and dance to the group. They formed a conga line right outside the building and danced in the streets together. The festival was crawling with agents who Angela paid no mind. Their intimidation tactics, including tear gas, wouldn't phase her. They didn't scare her, and they weren't going to ruin her trip. When she returned to the United States, an FBI agent wanted to know why she was there and what ties she had to communism. He didn't intimidate her either. Now remember, this is the 1950s and 60s, so the United States' fight against communism was in full swing. Angela Davis continued her education abroad, majoring in French. She was accepted into the Hamilton College junior year program in France. While she was in Paris, she was hit with the most devastating news, the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing in Birmingham, Alabama, in September of 1963. The bombing was a terrorist attack and killed four young girls aged 11 to 14. Addie Mae Collins, Cynthia Wesley, 
Carol Robertson, and Carol Denise McNair. The KKK, the Ku Klux Klan, was behind this atrocity and responsible for the murder of these young girls. But for Angela, these girls were so much more than just names in a newspaper. These were people that she knew as friends of the family and neighbors. These were faces that she had seen around town and the girls that her sister played with who were around her age. She wanted nothing more than to be back home with her community during this time of mourning and devastation. But she would have to mourn the loss alone and finish her studies. None of her classmates really understood what she was experiencing. After this, however, she decided that she would turn her interest to philosophy, and she wanted to get to the heart of these new ideologies she was exploring. Coming up next, Angela falls in love with activism, communism, and the Black Panther Party. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. After graduation, she decided to attend the University of Frankfurt in Germany to study philosophy even further. Her mind was stimulated and intrigued by the discussion, lectures, and seminars. She became acquainted with members of the Socialist German Student Union and those living in the Communist East Germany. While there, she also attended protests against the Vietnam War, even with the threat of deportation looming over her head. They would take to the streets, stopping traffic, and sit in on the train tracks during the demonstration. Each and every one of them was risking arrest, beatings, and possibly death. But back across the Atlantic, organizations such as the Black Panther Party and SNCC, or Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, had formed but back across the Atlantic, these organizations had formed the Black Panther Party and the SNCC, or the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X had emerged as key players in the movement for human rights. A revolutionary movement was heating up. And Angela was too far away to be in the mix. I mean, back then, it wasn't like she could follow a hashtag email or text someone back home to learn more and be updated about what was happening. How could she join the movement? She demanded that she be allowed to continue her studies in California at the University of California, San Diego, so she could be closer to the movement. When she returned, she would arrive as the new kid on the block. Malcolm X had recently been assassinated in 1965, and of course, Everyone was skeptical of people trying to join any of these major movements. We got civil rights going on, the fight against communism, so many things happening at once. The stakes were high, and it was healthy to be skeptical. In Angela Davis's autobiography, she recalls calling up some of the local leaders to see how she could get involved. It's not surprising that they didn't reach back out. I mean, you're trying to organize a movement that overthrows major systems of oppression and someone calls you up out of the blue saying they want to join your organization. In the meantime, she decided to join a radical student organization and they hit the streets, spreading information to stop the Vietnam War. A few of the members had been arrested, but why? Obstructing pedestrian traffic. But that didn't make a whole lot of sense. 
According to the police officer who had done the arresting, anyone standing on the sidewalk could face the same charge. He sounded ridiculous. They became more and more frustrated with their questions. His embarrassment grew as they began laughing at his vague responses to the most simple questions. His ego had been bruised. In no time, the station was flooded with police, and they came down to the demonstration to arrest people, including Angela. Angela and her friend Anna were locked in the back of a boiling hot police car for nearly a half hour, sweating profusely and beginning to fear the worst. Even a 70-degree day temperature inside a locked car can reach well past 115 degrees. The police officer who finally arrived to start driving ruminated over any felonious charges they could make stick. Fortunately, none of the charges would stick, and they were eventually free to go. But the story made the news. This wouldn't be the last time that Angela Davis would make headlines. She decided an alternative way to get involved would be to start her own black student union on campus. The problem was there wasn't a whole lot of black students on campus. So after going door to door and spreading the word, they found maybe 15 to 20 black people, and only 10 of which showed up to an actual interest meeting. From there, the group organized whatever issues they could find. In November 1967, Angela attended the Black Youth Conference. She was overjoyed at the number of smiling black faces and the rich culture at the conference. It was a much needed change in scenery, but that wouldn't last long. Slowly but surely, she began to see that everyone had so many different ideas about how to advance as a people. But much like today, they had separatists, pan-Africanists, extremists, and moderates all under the same roof. And there was so much disagreement on strategy, so much so that a gunfight broke out at the conference. More disagreements followed between the Black Panther Political and the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. If you're thinking of Huey Newton and Bobby Seale, then you're thinking of the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. The Black Panther Party Political focused more on analyzing power dynamics and providing support where needed. But it's easy to see where the confusion came from, and out of the confusion developed a competitiveness for the name. Angela aligned herself more with the Black Panther Party Political. This organization was also a part of the LA Black Congress. Her interests and dedication to the cause earned her an invitation to that organization. It also earned her envy and scrutiny from her black male counterparts who felt she was overstepping. At the time, only three invitations were being offered, and she was one of them. During one of her routine visits to the Black Congress building, she noticed an intoxicated man, but chose to pay him very little attention. When she walked by, he grabbed her and put a gun to her head. He demanded that the Black Panther Party political change their name. Otherwise, her life and the lives of all of the members were at stake. The man advised her not to call his bluff. They knew where she lived and they weren't afraid to use force. In her autobiography, she does make it clear that later this member was expelled from the Black Panther Party for self-defense due to his actions. But for now, she and her comrades had to figure out a strategy to eliminate this tension. In the meantime, she was sure to keep herself armed at all times. They enlisted the help of civil rights leader James Foreman. He was well known for his work in numerous organizations and movements. Everything from SNCC to the Black Panthers, the bus boycotts, and the Selma to Montgomery marches. He suggested their organization team up with SNCC because at that time, SNCC was working on improving their relationship with the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. If they were absorbed by SNCC, they wouldn't have the same name, 
and they would be able to carry out the same work with the addition of an East Coast office. But would this be enough? I mean, guns had literally already been drawn. A peace meeting was called, and all the major and minor players were there. The Black Panther Party for Self-Defense had Eldred Cleaver, Bobby Seale, and little Bobby Hutton. Huey Newton, who was in jail at the time, was not in attendance. Angela Davis found Bobby very refreshing. He seemed genuine and she enjoyed their conversation. But unfortunately, she wouldn't have the opportunity for many more conversations. A few months later, little Bobby Hutton was shot by the Oakland police and killed. On February 18th, a young man by the name of Gregory Clark was shot and killed not too far from Angela's office, and she went out to learn more about what happened. Evidently, it was a classic case of driving while black. Gregory and a friend were accused of stealing the car they were in and drinking alcohol. Neither were true. The car was his, and they were enjoying a few sodas. He was asked to step out of the car, handcuff, and then tackled to the ground. While lying on the ground face down, he was shot in the back of the head. His blood spilled on the concrete. Angela stood at the spot where it all happened and could see the blood stain. Something needed to be done. The community was in an absolute uproar. This young man's life mattered, and instead of being treated like it mattered, he was killed in cold blood. Angela was livid. She and other members of the organization began to make plans to get this case to trial. They passed out flyers to anyone in the community, one of which was designed to look like a wanted poster with the face of the police officer, Warren B. Carson, wanted for the murder of Gregory Clark. Ironically, he received a Medal of Valor from the LAPD just the year before. They wanted to apply as much pressure as possible so that Gregory's death at the hands of the LAPD wasn't just swept under the rug. They held a People's Tribunal and found him guilty. They wanted to keep the momentum going and march on City Hall, but their attention would soon be diverted and the case would ultimately be closed without Carson facing any legal consequences. A dark day moved in for those who stood in solidarity for human rights. April 4th, 1968, Dr. Martin Luther King had been shot. At first, Angela felt some sort of responsibility. He wasn't the first leader to have been assassinated, but for some reason, his nonviolent approach didn't seem like something that would warrant a death sentence. Angela suspected, as many of us do today, that he was assassinated because he was attempting to unite poor whites and poor blacks in a unified fight against the oppressive systems. It has now been proven that there was FBI involvement in his murder, which speaks volumes. When people tell you that Dr. King didn't die for XYZ, remember, he didn't just die. He was killed. If you don't know how crazy things got when Dr. King was shot, ask some of your parents or grandparents. I'm sure they can tell you exactly where they were. Angela Davis was doing what she was always doing, working and organizing. She would have to shift gears to support a community that was participating in the national outcry. They attended a huge meeting with fellow organizations and encouraged people to meet them at the 2nd Street Baptist Church. They left three people in charge of watching the office. When they returned from the meeting, no one was there. Something was definitely off. They walked in the office and saw that the place had been completely vandalized, especially their printers. The place had been completely ransacked, papers and furniture thrown everywhere. Two women next door let them know that over a dozen police officers arrested the three members left in charge and trashed the office. They all began to strategize on how they could get these members out of jail. And after a long, hard day of discussing and brainstorming, they decided to heat up some leftover spaghetti. 
Once bowls were in hand, people began to partake in the meal. It was quickly discovered that there were tacks in their food. Angela Davis and her fellow freedom fighters decided to leave and they left everything exactly where it was. They called a press conference to show people exactly what the police had done. The police officially had them pinned as enemy number one. They were also being backed by the government who was determined to snuff out the black power movement, the larger effort known as COINTELPRO. At a later incident, after a fundraiser, police would follow a man named Franklin, a close friend and fellow organizer and security back to his apartment, where he tucked away the funds for safekeeping. The police showed up claiming that there was noise coming from the apartment. They arrested anyone in the home and charged Franklin with armed robbery. The police were hoping that this arrest would put a damper on any future demonstrations. The police saw Franklin as a leader, and as far as they were concerned, no leader, no protest. But instead, Angela Davis helped lead a demonstration directly to the courthouse to demand Franklin's release. It was the people's decision. The charges were dropped, and Franklin was able to lead the rally just as planned. Everyone felt empowered, strong, and unified. If only the organization itself also felt unified. But male ego was starting to get in the way. Some of the male members of the organization felt that women in the organization had overstepped their involvement. Even at this time, it was expected that women play the role of helper or supporter, not organizer and leader. But truth be told, Angela and the other women were doing the less glamorous work that it seemed many were forgetting to do. We see this mindset even today for some people. The idea of activism of being in the spotlight, giving speeches and having their photograph taken. But this outshines the real dangerous, monotonous and draining day-to-day -day work that activists answer the call to do. For Angela Davis, being an activist was a full-time job. It was her career. When asked if she was afraid to die, she looked at it almost like an occupation hazard. She believed that the fear of dying wasn't enough to stop her. The struggle was more important than anything else, so she had given her life to the struggle as so many before had already done. Angela Davis wasn't trying to step on anyone's toes. She was just trying to do what needed to be done. Lines were drawn in the sand. A few men in the organization, like Franklin, were on the lady's side. They had already reached out to the New York office for some assistance with the conflict. Instead of an actual solution, they were met with criticism, and they especially disapproved of the idea that they were communists in the organization. At this time, Angela Davis wasn't an official communist, but Franklin was. He became a sort of enemy number one within the organization. After the demonstration, LA Times printed an article about him and really emphasized his involvement as a member of the Communist Party and he was expelled from the organization. Angela wanted to resign right then and there. One by one, the organization shrunk in numbers, and soon the LA chapter of SNCC as they knew it was no more. This provided Angela with the push to make things official with the Communist Party, and in July 1968, she paid her dues and became an official member of the Communist Party USA. She decided to join the Che Lumumba Club, this was an organization of all-black communists named after Che Guevara and Patrice Lumumba. And if you don't know who Patrice is, we actually have an episode about him. But anyway, the organization made plans to visit Cuba for themselves. They wanted to see the political system of communism in action. Leading up to the trip, Angela's passport and purse were stolen. The Mexican police were skeptical surrounding why they were there. She presented herself as a helpless tourist, and they got her passport the very next day. They journeyed through Mexico, then Cuba, managing to conceal their true intentions. When they arrived in Cuba, she was overwhelmed by the passion of commitment. 
she was able to see firsthand post-revolutionary life in Cuba without the opinions of the United States government or media. At her speaking engagements, she was all smiles. She spoke and beamed with joy when she talked about the beauty of Cuba. She worked alongside the people in the fields and fully immersed herself in their lifestyle. Even learning a little bit of Spanish. Racism was not only outlawed but removed from the nation's power structure. There were many black Cubans in positions that they otherwise would not have been able to hold. But there were a few downsides. The labor in the fields was intensive. The heat left her drenched in sweat and conversations with the locals revealed that although they were doing what was necessary, this type of labor was not enjoyable. It was a means to an end. She was sad to go but knew it was time for her to return home with what she learned. The group ordered a freight ship to a cluster of French islands. While on the route, they were stopped and harassed by a United States aircraft that ultimately let them pass. When they arrived on the islands, however, what was supposed to be a smooth exchange at customs almost prevented them from returning home. You see, the French were concerned that they were trying to bring communism to their island, and they were not having it. Angela was the only one who spoke French. Everyone else spoke Spanish, so she acted as a translator. The more she tried to explain and reason with the officers, the more irrational they became. They confiscated everyone's passports and explained that they would have to remain in the country until the next day and await further judgment. But this wouldn't work. This wasn't a part of the plan. They were supposed to get on a plane to Puerto Rico, which would take them to New York. They were able to make contact with a strong, powerful, and confident black lawyer, a woman by the name of Gertie Archimede. She was also a member of the Communist Party in Guadalupe. Angela was certain this woman was more than qualified to help, and she wasn't wrong. Gertie is a historical icon in her own right. She worked tirelessly to get an update on their case and was able to work out a deal. They could leave, but any books and other cargo had to stay. That was good enough for them, and they were on the next plane to Puerto Rico. Angela returned to her work as an assistant professor in the philosophy department at the University of California, Los Angeles. Now, Angela got the job because she was qualified and she had real-world work experience. She was about that life, and students needed someone informed and relatable. She loved teaching, but some people weren't exactly thrilled that a communist was teaching at UCLA. There are even reports of informants attending her class, pretending to be students, and reporting back on their findings. But according to school policy, she couldn't be fired due to her party affiliations, so her job was safe for now. But Angela wasn't worried. She was too busy working. She was organizing. The problem was the Black Panther Party had been infiltrated and many of her peers, like Fred Hampton, had been killed. There was so much additional stress on top of everything else. She couldn't crack. She wouldn't crack. The government would not let up about her affiliations with the Communist Party. The governor at the time of California, our favorite man, Ronald Reagan, was particularly adamant that Angela Davis no longer work at UCLA. He wanted her fired, but multiple organizations kept fighting for her to teach and she kept showing up. When questioned about her affiliations with the Communist Party, she said that she was a communist. She had nothing to hide. In fact, she resented that question. It was her right to have whatever political affiliations she chose and she was very vocal about it. Were they expecting her to lie or buckle under pressure? Not soon after, she started receiving bomb threats and needed her own personal phone line and security. She received hundreds of death threats and needed security to escort her at all times on campus. On several occasions, her car was even checked for bombs. Calls were coming in saying that she wouldn't leave campus alive. People began harassing her friends and family about her impending demise. She was very uncomfortable with her increased notoriety. 
but not afraid of any empty threats. But people were beginning to recognize her more and more when she was out and about. Fortunately, a lot of these people deeply supported her and what she represented. Still, even though she had this support and wasn't afraid for herself, she worried about those closest to her, especially her parents who stood beside her and supported her regardless of her beliefs. They were even starting to feel effects due to her association with the Communist Party. Slowly but surely, more and more people wanted less and less to do with the Davis family. One very early morning, she received a call from her sister, Fania. Her brother-in-law had been shot twice by the police. The police ran up to their house and they were just defending their home. He was in the hospital but was expected to recover. Angela began calling on everyone she knew and rushed to her sister's house. Even though the police were the ones that antagonized them because they shot back, Fania and Angela Davis's brother-in-law were charged with attempted murder of a police officer. The media had a field day with these accusations, but the charges were dropped after a year. Violence from the police would continue the more they continued to resist and organize. The police turned their attention to getting rid of the Black Panther office in L.A. once and for all. They attempted to storm the office, but members inside were holding down the fort. When Angela received that call, she attempted to rush to the site, but it was blocked off by several blocks down the road. Angela and her friends decided it was best to continue on foot. Bombs were being dropped on the Black Panther office, and bullets flew through the air as gunshots rang out from both sides. They tried to get a closer look with binoculars, but couldn't see much. They decided to enlist the help of some of the neighborhood children. If you played outside when you were a kid, you know that you knew your neighborhood inside and out, and if someone needed to know a back way, kids were the perfect people to ask. The kids got them right up to the scene. Police marched in formation in the streets. Crowds gathered in the roads and people were unable to get to their homes. One home had been commandeered as a temporary headquarters by police during the shootout. No one had any updates on anyone inside the office. Who was dead? Who was injured? They didn't know. Finally, a phone call came in. Miraculously, no one had been killed during the standoff, but they were badly wounded. The people inside the building eventually surrendered. They waved their white flag, and when they walked out of the office, the crowd cheered, power to the people. They all reconvened at a nearby local high school in the gymnasium to rally and organize and commune. Franklin had already spoken with the students at the school in the midst of the protests. Everyone was unified and teamed up against the resistance, and they decided that they would march on City Hall again, and everyone did their part to get the word out. They needed to get their brothers and sisters out of jail. But police returned to the Black Panther office with tear gas this time. They regrouped again and decided to hold a vigil to deter their presence. The LAPD declared that their assembly for the vigil was illegal and gave them three minutes to disperse. Rather than doing so, they decided to take their show on the road and became what Angela Davis described as a moving picket line. She was in the back of the line when chaos ensued. Police were at the front of the line attacking anyone and everyone. Angela tried to turn her back and run, but the crowd had turned into complete chaos. She tripped and fell down, hitting her head hard on the concrete, and then things only got worse from there. People began to trample her, unaware of who was beneath their feet. Fortunately, someone recognized her on the ground, and several hands began to pull her back to her feet, but she had to keep running. Bruised and battered, she ran as fast as she could until a local woman opened her doors to the group of protesters that were with her all around the neighborhood. People had allowed the organizers to seek refuge in their homes with, while police patrolled the street. Angela, still catching her breath, peeked out the window to see police cars on patrol. As soon as the coast was clear, she darted across the street where she saw more of her comrades. 
This house was serving as a first aid station, but there was no time for her to get patched up and there were so many others in need. Once reunited, the police demanded that everyone disperse or the violence would continue. They reconvened in secret in a much smaller group in the middle of the night. They had to hold an emergency meeting. The rally would take place in less than 24 hours and they needed to discuss their strategy given this recent police attack. They were unsure how many people would show up, but the community support was needed in solidarity with the Black Panthers who had been arrested. The turnout was more than Angela Davis or any of them would have hoped for. She estimates that upwards of 10,000 people turned out. The feeling of a crowd gathering together for one singular purpose was absolutely beautiful. In spite of everything that occurred the night before, in spite of the attempts here, they were all there. It's victories like this along the way that showed everyone what they were really fighting for. But Angela Davis had a personal fight coming much closer to home. Around this time, her downstairs neighbor and building manager were becoming increasingly neurotic. Angela noticed that he was starting to watch her closely. At first, she thought maybe he was just a little bit off. You know that feeling when something is not right, but maybe you don't want to be paranoid? But she had every right to have a sinking suspicion about this man. One day when she was leaving home, police approached her and told her that a complaint had been filed against her. Her downstairs neighbor was accusing her of communist mind control and stated that her voice through the walls was encouraging him to do harm to himself and her. The neighbor believed that Angela Davis wanted him dead. Of course, these accusations were completely unfounded. Angela was far too busy to devil in mind control of her downstairs neighbor. It was clear that he needed help, but it wouldn't stop there. One evening when she was retiring for the night, she went over to her window to close the blinds and saw the man sitting in his car watching her. She had seen him earlier that day, but he was still sitting there. She closed the curtain and tried to work through her disbelief. She peeked from behind the curtain and noticed that he was circling the block over and over again. She waited for the car to drive by once more when she decided to leave her apartment without the man seeing her. But he was right on her tail. He followed her closely until she pulled into her neighborhood grocery store. She knew the manager there and was hoping she could help and seek some refuge. Please remember, this is Angela Davis we're talking about. She couldn't just call the police and she definitely didn't want things to escalate between her and her neighbor. Since he had filed a complaint, if she did end up having to kill or shoot him, how would that look? She would surely be arrested and all the work she was doing would be in jeopardy. So going to a well-lit public establishment was probably her best bet. When she got out of her car to enter the grocery store parking lot, the man attempted to run her down with his vehicle. She rushed inside to tell the store manager that someone was trying to kill her. He sent security out to the parking lot, but he was gone. Once the coast was clear, she drove to her friends Franklin and Kendra's house. Of course, they wanted to know why she hadn't said anything sooner about the seriousness of the situation or had her security around. Regardless of what steps could have been taken before, the fact remains that Angela could not stay at her apartment. She would have to move, which is a huge disappointment because she loved that apartment and was getting one hell of a deal. She and her sister were getting ready to move things out and pack everything up when the man showed up at her doorstep. He wanted to apologize for his behavior. He admitted to hearing voices and even told her that he wrote poems about her. It was definitely something of an obsession. Angela felt bad for the man, but empathy aside, it didn't change the fact that she had to move. And she suggested to him that he seek medical attention for these thoughts. Angela moved in with her friend Tamu and her baby. She was a new mother and her husband was in jail for a demonstration. It was an adjustment having a roommate, but it was nice being close to her friend, as well as her other friends Franklin and Kendra who lived nearby. 
Angela put the incident behind her and got right back to work. And this is where the story takes yet another turn. Coming up next, Angela's activism brings her to her biggest showdown with the law and makes her the most infamous black woman in America. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. Angela's working in her office at UCLA when someone knocks on her door and hands her a piece of paper. It was official business and she had been summoned to court. But for what? There was barely any information on the piece of paper and the name of the person who was requesting her was completely unfamiliar to her. She showed up both out of a desire to help and curiosity. When she arrived, a young man by the name of Hakima was on trial. They had never met formally before, but he was very familiar with who she was. Apparently, years ago, he was convicted of murder in a robbery incident gone wrong, but he claims that he wasn't directly responsible for the death of the man the group was robbing. He wanted Angela to advocate on his behalf and take an interest in the case. She was all too familiar with the effects of racism and poverty. These circumstances lead not only to his case, but for the case of so many others. Her new friend was being held at the Soledad prison. This led her to become more involved for the Soledad Brothers Defense Committee. Around the same time, she heard the news of three black men, George Jackson, Fleeta Drumgo, and George Clichet, who were charged with killing a prison guard during an uprising within the jail. The uprising was triggered by the murder of a few other black inmates. The officer fell to his death, and these three men were accused of pushing him out of retaliation. But the case was flimsy, and it was clear that the system was just looking to put this on the nearest somebodies who fit the description. With her involvement with the case and her ties to the Communist Party, things were really heating up. But none of this ever stopped Angela from pursuing what was right. And on June 15th, there would be a pretrial hearing for the three men. Angela Davis, the Chalumba Club, the Soledad Brothers Defense Committee, and her loyal supporters organized a rally to raise funds and awareness. Jane Fonda was even in attendance. The actress, Jane Fonda, yeah. And if you're not familiar with her activism, you should definitely get familiar. She is much more than just a Hollywood elite. Angela's involvement with the rally gave some of the administration at UCLA the leverage to fire her. They believed that this behavior was unbecoming of a professor. But I don't know about you, I would have loved the professor that was right there on the sidelines with some of their students. She called out Ronald Reagan in her speech at the movement and was fired. In her autobiography, she recalls that the photo they used of her was that of her on the picket line with a sign saying, Save the Soledad Brothers from the legal lynching. She was thrilled that this was the photo that was used because even though it was intended to throw down on her name, it brought more awareness as to what was going on. She began getting very close with George, one of the three being accused of the murder. They wrote frequently, and it was clear that she was beginning to develop feelings for him. These feelings for him would later be used against her. 
despite their efforts in organizing the entire operation, would be put in jeopardy on August 7, 1970. Jonathan Jackson, George's little brother, decided to take matters into his own hands. He stormed the courthouse during the trial and took one of the prisoners, the judge, three of the jurors, and the deputy district attorney hostage. It is assumed his plan was to use them as leverage to free the Soledad brothers. He was ushering them into a van with the help of three other prisoners he had freed and armed when the police began firing shots. The judge was shot with a shotgun that was tapped to his neck by Jonathan. The other hostages were also wounded in the process. Police explain that their main priority in a hostage situation is to stop the kidnapping no matter how many lives are lost. Jonathan was shot and killed by police at the age of 17. Let's be clear, Angela was not there. So what do those actions have to do with her? Well, the firearms used in the incident belonged to Angela. This was enough for them to charge her with kidnapping, murder, and accessory. The police were on their way to arrest her, but she got out of Dodge. Before you judge her, consider if you would have turned yourself in given the circumstances. Angela enlisted the help of her friend, Helen, this time would be a true testament of friendship and all of the connections that Angela Davis had made. They would be her only way to successfully go underground. Helen gave her a disguise, a curly wig to cover up her iconic afro. They left in the middle of the night when they were more than sure that no one would see them. Anxiety ran high. Every red light, every car going by was an opportunity for somebody to spot them. They made it to the home of a couple named Hattie and John. They were supporters of the movement and took her in with a warm welcome. Their home was to provide a temporary sanctuary for her, but she couldn't stay long. They were looking for Angela high and low. Her photograph was all over the news, and her face was even on the cover of Life magazine next to six little words, wanted by the FBI, Angela Davis. Angela decided to take a risk, and she would reach out to a good friend of hers, David Poindexter, who lived in Chicago. Angela was going to fly out of an airport in Las Vegas with David accompanying her. But David misunderstood the message. He thought that Angela was making her way all the way to him, but she wouldn't realize this miscommunication until she was already standing in the airport. David was nowhere to be found. Fortunately, Hattie agreed to accompany her the entire trip despite Angela insisting that she had to make the journey alone. Instead, they had to go with the plan B. They would drive all the way to Chicago, but Angela and David couldn't stay long. A neighbor of David's who was supposed to keep Angela while David was scheduled to be out of town was very apprehensive about her presence. They became weary that he would be an informant and had to leave yet again. They drove to David's home that he previously owned with his deceased wife. They got her a new wig and a complete makeover, false lashes and all. They got in the car and headed to New York, and from New York, the plan was to catch a train down to Miami. But they would never make it to Miami. You may be thinking she could have avoided all this and just left the country. But if she left, when would she ever get the chance to come back? How long would she have to live out her life under the radar in a new country, separated from her friends, her family, and the causes she cared most about? Even though she had no intention of leaving, she wrote a statement to the press as a diversion and said that she was out of the country, but would return once things had been cleared up. Angela was completely wrecked with stress and lack of sleep. At this point, she had been on the run for about two months. David suggested that they go see a movie to get her mind off of things. Needless to say, this didn't help, and when they returned, there was a pit in Angela's stomach. Something was off. Was it paranoia or intuition? After looking over her shoulder for nearly two months, in this case, she would be right. 
Upon returning to the hotel lobby and making it all the way up the hall where the room was, police were all around them. They reached out and grabbed her, asking, Are you Angela Davis? She said nothing. They ripped off her wig. She was handcuffed and fingerprinted. One of the officers asked her if she would like a cigarette. She said, not from you, and continued to exercise her right to remain silent. At this point, there's no telling how many black women with an afro have been asked the same question. In the manhunt for Angela Davis, they had harassed countless people, thinking that they were the real Angela Davis. They had been wrong so many times, but this time, they had her. She was escorted out of the hotel. There was a swarm of spectators and media personnel shoving microphones in her face and taking pictures. They are taking down the road and through a garage door. Where was she exactly? They took her to the FBI station where she was searched, then moved. She began to recognize the area as one she walked by frequently when she was in school years ago. She would be held at New York Women's House of Detention. They escorted her into jail and sat her in a lobby where she waited and waited. She still hadn't had her one phone call. She had spoken with a few officers already and had been searched on two separate occasions. She was becoming increasingly more agitated about the wait. Was anyone going to get her where she needed to go for the evening? During her wait, one of the black officers approached her and let her know that they were rooting for her and that a lot of the people within the jail were rooting for her. But she couldn't trust anyone, so she kept her mouth shut. They even tried to give her a piece of candy when she was up in the cell by herself. A kind gesture, but not one that could be trusted. Another woman being booked let her know that people were outside protesting for her. She lay down in her cell, she listened, and she could hear from inside those walls people cheering for her. Little did she know that all around the world, people were cheering for her, and they would keep advocating for her freedom. The next day, she finally got a visit from her father's lawyer. It was John Abbott. He was the main counsel of the Communist Party. She was familiar with him because he represented many of the party members. Her old friend Margaret Burnham was able to visit her and agreed without hesitation to help her with her case. The police tried to make her life in jail as complicated as possible. They gave her lawyers misdirections about which courtroom she would be in. They wouldn't let her have toilet paper in her cell. And worst of all, they were holding her in the psychological ward of the jail. The reasoning behind this is that they didn't want her mixing with the general population for her own safety. But the truth is, they did not want her interacting with other prisoners and feared that she would spread some of her more radical ideals. Her heart broke for the treatment of these women. Many of them were not receiving the care that they actually needed. They were heavily medicated and heavily unheard. Any protest at these conditions, of course, fell on deaf ears. She remained extremely vocal about wanting to be moved to general population. They moved her all right. They moved her right into solitary confinement. She was isolated in every way and watched 24-7, even keeping a log of all of her activities. Her team began to work on a federal lawsuit that she was being discriminated against due to her political beliefs. She decided to go on a hunger strike until she was moved to the general population. The case stuck, and they agreed to move her to the seventh floor in a small cell on the corner, which is best for keeping an eye on her. The conditions of this prison weren't like those that you see in a TV show, and they aren't to be glamorized or sugarcoated. The jail was filthy. There were mice and bugs, screams in the middle of the night, and abuse from the guards. Through all this, the women within this system developed families. They looked out for each other. Angela recalls herself in jail one night, and everyone would say goodnight to each other by name. And when they got to her, she may not have known anyone's name, but they all said goodnight to her by name. 
She began teaching them about communism and giving them literature to read about philosophy and economics. She even taught her fellow inmates karate and basic self-defense, despite constant opposition from the guards. She picked up yoga and became a vegetarian, mainly because the meat in prison was so disgusting, crawling with maggots. One evening, a woman was calling out in pain. She was having chest pain and was being medically ignored. The women protested on her behalf and refused to retreat to their cells until someone got her medical attention. Come to find out there were tumors in her chest. Angela would continue to lead the women in organizing and protesting whenever possible. They could jail her body, but not her spirit, and it was infectious. She and the women decided to start up a bail fund. They agreed that one of them would receive the funds and they would all vote on who that person would be. They called out to people below in the outside world to help them organize as well. When that person was free, they would raise money for the rest, the women on the outside, and the process would continue. For those of you who don't know, jail is not where you go when you've been convicted of a crime. Jail is where you go when you're awaiting court or sentencing, but you can't afford bail. For people who have money, posting bail is no problem and they can carry on until there's a trial date to figure out whether or not they're going to prison. For those without money or those who don't qualify for bail, they have to wait in confinement as prisoners without actually having been found guilty of a crime. On December 21, 1970, on the ground outside, protests continued on Angela's behalf. The chants were especially loud outside. She could hear chants such as, Free Angela Davis! Free all our sisters! And Angela and her sisters shouted back and protested from inside the jail. They screamed from their windows, Free our sisters! Free ourselves! Angela chanted everyone's names. She wanted everyone to be free. She was hoarse for a week from screaming and shouting in protest. Of course, they were told to quiet down and refused. The guards became aggressive, but this still didn't stop them. In the middle of the night, she was extradited to California, and any appeals on her behalf had been denied. Rather than giving her the weekend to say goodbye, she was whisked away in the middle of the night. She thought that she wouldn't have a chance to say goodbye, but she could hear her sisters chanting for her as they escorted her away. They took her to McGuire Air Force in New Jersey. It was dark and freezing outside. Police officers and military watched her every move to ensure she made it on the plane. I mean, what was she going to do? She didn't have a gun or any weapons. I mean, they had already searched her before they even got her on the plane. But still, Angela was careful not to give them any reason to kill her right there before taking off. Next stop was San Quentin. The jail in California was different and they gave her a more familiar surrounding closer to people and connections she had already established. She was able to assemble a team of lawyers and represented herself in the case. Her team was not only excellent, but all black. Herself, Howard Moore, Leo Branton, and Margaret Burnham. While incarcerated, the guards allowed her very little freedom. Any little thing they could do to make life more difficult, they did. They watched her constantly. They limited her interactions with fellow prisoners, but that did not stop them from passing notes and showing her their solidarity. At her first court appearance, she was met with applause and raised a handcuffed fist to the best of her ability in solidarity. It was no surprise that the judge denied her the possibility of bail, but they did agree to let her have additional workspace to meet with her legal team. During this time, she would also work on a book called If They Come in the Morning. It was a collection of various prison writings from several contributors assembled and edited by Angela. It was published in 1971 while she was still in jail. The title came from a letter authored by James Baldwin, who wrote addressing her as his sister, saying, We must fight for your life as though it were our own, which it is, 
and render impassable with our bodies the corridor to the gas chamber, for if they take you in the morning, they will be coming for us that night. Nina Simone also visited her in jail, bringing her a red balloon as a gift to lift her spirits. Dozens of countries and organizations across the globe were fighting for her freedom. She even became Time Magazine's 1971 Woman of the Year. Angela was deeply touched. All of the support reinforced what she always believed, that they were all connected. We are all responsible for one another. Another silver lining in all of this is that she was able to see George again. Although they were both under the watch of the state, their cases overlapped to some extent. They were allowed their legal teams to meet with both of them present. She was overjoyed to see him, but sad that they had to meet under these circumstances. Not long after, she would learn that this would be her last time seeing George. On August 21, 1971, he was shot in the back by a guard and killed. To add insult to injury, March 28, 1972, the other two men in the Soledad case would be acquitted. George would never get to see his freedom. Angela was absolutely devastated at the news. This loss weighed so heavily on top of all of the other people that had been taken from her along the way. But she didn't fall apart. She couldn't. She barely had time, and this was hardly the environment, to fall to pieces and mourn him. The sadness she felt would push her forward. She didn't want to die in jail. She didn't want anyone else to have to die in jail. The tides were turning. There was a possibility she wouldn't have to stay in jail very long. Initially, she was absolutely not eligible for bail. But during this exact moment, California had temporarily, and in more recent history permanently, abolished the death penalty, giving her the possibility for bail. Now, the Aretha Franklin had already agreed to pay Angela's bail before it was even an option. Now they just had to get a hold of Aretha, who was out of the country at the time. But it was difficult, if not impossible, for her to sign over the funds before she was able to return to the country. A white farmer has stepped up seemingly out of nowhere and agreed to put his farm up for bail, covering all $102,500 of it. Now, he wasn't exactly Aretha Franklin, but he came just in time. Angela had strict stipulations about where she could go, who she could talk to, and had to check in frequently while out on bail. Still, this was better than being trapped in a cell. Her trial was coming up, and they had to make sure their strategy was top-notch. They had to meet frequently to discuss exactly how they were going to achieve a not guilty verdict. The prosecution was preparing to paint Angela as an emotional woman, driven by her love for George to conduct a ludicrous plan that resulted in the death of three people. She supplied the guns with full knowledge of Jonathan's intended actions. Of course, this couldn't be further from the truth. Angela's involvement in the Soledad brothers' case predated any interest she may have had in George. Furthermore, she knew nothing of the plan surrounding what had happened at the courthouse that day. Had she known, she would have advised Jonathan against it. The other challenge would be selecting a jury. The prosecution and the defense would have a hard time agreeing on jurors that could be impartial one way or the other. Eventually, a nearly all-white jury was accepted, but regardless of skin color, there were members that Angela felt were reasonable. Throughout her troubles, although she was adamant about the liberation of black people, she thought that all people needed to be liberated, and she had no problem with anyone black or white who supported just causes. Angela's team decided to focus on the facts. They had several witnesses to vouch for her character and to validate the fact that she was previously well involved with the Soledad brothers' case aside from her connection to George. People who knew her testified that anyone on her security team had access to firearms. This included Jonathan and experts who could point out flaws in witness testimony. 
In one instance, one of the prosecutor's witnesses couldn't even tell Angela apart from her good friend Kendra. Still, no one was sure if this would be enough. She was connected to Jonathan, and she had purchased some of the guns not long before the incident. To make matters worse, there was an incident before the conclusion of the trial, in which a plane was hijacked. Rumors surrounded the hijacking, trying to link Angela to the event, when in reality, they couldn't be less related. On the day of the verdict, the tension in the courthouse was thick. The jurors weren't really giving anything away as they entered the courtroom. Angela's good friend Margaret lost composure for a moment and shouted, Oh no, when they came in. The tension was almost unbearable. I imagine that the time in the courtroom moved slower than it ever had before. One by one, the charges were read. Murder. Not guilty. Kidnapping. Not guilty. And conspiracy. Not guilty. A swell of emotion filled the courtroom and a rumble of cheers and joyous cries escaped into the air. Angela Davis walked out of the courtroom, a free woman, case closed. Afterwards, they partied hard, celebrating this well-deserved victory. But for Angela, her victory wasn't enough. There needed to be justice for all political prisoners and all people, so the next day, she continued her fight. She went on a nationwide tour the following week after her verdict, speaking, organizing, and raising awareness around cases such as the Alcatraz brothers, Puerto Rican nationalist Lolita Lebron, the wrongfully accused Wilmington 10, and many, many others. As for her job, she sued and would continue teaching and later resign on her own terms. She closed out her 20s with her most iconic literary piece, her autobiography. When she wrote with the encouragement and guidance of critically acclaimed author Toni Morrison. Today, she has written several books in between her speaking engagements and protests. In 2019, she was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame. It seems that since she set out on this journey, she never really stopped. She has continued fighting for prison abolition, LGBTQ rights as both an advocate and member of the community, feminism, and the welfare of others. I mean, have you seen recent photos of her with her fists raised, still protesting to this day? Don't get it confused. Angela Davis is happy to pop up on the scene, wherever her presence is required. And she still believes that with all her heart, equity is possible. And you should too. Until next time. This episode was written by Jordan Howard, edited and narrated by Andre White. If you enjoyed that episode of the Redacted History Podcast, please consider going to leave a review on whatever platform you're listening to. And if you've already left a review, go tell somebody about it. Share the podcast, share the episode, and tell me what you think about it on Instagram by tagging at Redacted History underscore. I appreciate all the love. It never goes unnoticed. I'll see y'all next time. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.